Hi, and welcome back to The Free One. It's uh, mm. me, Riley. And, and I'm The Free One. And I'm here with The Free One. That's right. I am. Uh, it is Trash Future. Uh, I'm saying the whole name and not just the acronym for the first time in a long Whoa. time. Yeah. Whoa. Look. Also, our acronym is... It's the podcast that you're listening to right now. The fact that we call it TF misleads a lot of people into writing Trash Future as two separate words. Even people who are like huge fans of the podcast. Yeah. I'm always surprised to see this. Mm. Well, no, I'm deciding to be extra formal today mm. because I am very excited for uh, our guest, returning champion, I believe his second time on the show. Mm. So and we bid you good day, sir. <laughs> I said good day. So getting his uh, getting his pass for the club lounge uh, with free with free well spirits on, uh, from six until eight. It is mm. Laurie Labor and Langton. Author, along with Matt Lawrence, also lately of this parish, yeah, of who's play- getting no fucking cards. Yes. No, Matt <laughs> Lawrence, because he didn't don't actually come on the show. You get fucking nothing. Well, no, it's like if you reserve to come on the show and then don't come on the show, it's like an air mile. You don't get the air miles. Yeah, there will be, uh, yeah, there will be a cancellation fee that's applied. <laughs> yeah, he's barred from future We, trash we will be sending Dave Courtney to collect that from no, him. Uh, Laurie and and Matt, both lately of this parish. Uh, have written Planet on Fire, a manifesto for the age of environmental breakdown, a book that is, in fact, much more hopeful than its title would suggest. Yeah, supremely more hopeful. And guys, it's lovely to be back again. And as a, as a huge fan, I also had fallen into the trap of, of wait, is it two words or one? It's what? supposed to just be the one, one word. Oh. And I put an S at the end as well. A lot of the British, a lot of British people do that. And to be fair, we do talk about futures contracts quite a bit. Yeah, (laughs) maybe Mm. that's why. Yeah, trash futures is like going to be like our yearly conference, like the world transformed. Well, I I, like we investigate possible trash futures, and we have an array of speakers come in. Uh, I saw someone post a screenshot of a Bloomberg terminal suggesting that uh, the that there was going to be a Dogecoin future, but that could have just been a joke. So <laughs> you're just looking at people posting photos of their Bloomberg terminals because you want a Bloomberg. Yes, terminal. I desperately want a Bloomberg. Riley wants the Rick Owens Bloomberg terminal. <laughs> that's right. Has a big droopy jacket on it. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what I want. The other thing I want is to finally, st- for all of us to start our jobs, you too, Laurie, by the way, you have a new job now as Dave Courtney's gardener. <laughs> that's right. Yes. Because he appears to have posted some kind of ad, putting out an ad for like a gardener to come and work on like an internship basis he wants, for like, him. his followers to come around and help him like tar up his garden so that it's ready for the party season. The implication being that like... Dave Courtney's garden is sort of a public good because everyone is always invited to his parties. And so it's kind of like, you know, like fixing up the old swimming hole. Like you go down to Dave Courtney's Mm. house. He's refuting the argument about the tragedy of the commons. Everyone wants to maintain Dave Courtney's place because it's Commonwealth. We've got a clean order come out of the jacuzzi. It's uh, it's been lying in there all winter. It's it's become a sort of sludgy consistency. Milo. Every time we do the Twitch, we have the exact amount needed to save Dave Courtney's jacuzzi. <laughs> God. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, mm. Well, anyway, buy more <laughs> in com- Matt's book. <laughs> the, the top prize of the podcasting competition is exactly the amount of money you need to fix Dave Courtney's jacuzzi. <laughs> Dave Courtney's jacuzzi. Change the name. <laughs> Do it. All right. I know. I understand my fate. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, look. 
Uh, we're we're not just here to talk about that though. Uh, although I I am actually interested in possibly going uh, and working for Dave <laughs> Courtney. <laughs> yeah. Milo, you had no sleep. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, uh, no, so we are we are uh, beyond us uh, eventually going and working for Dave Courtney as his garden interns. Uh, before that happens, the job though, creator. Yeah, yeah, he is. I- I've got a few uh, quick hits in the news. Then a startup. Then we're going to talk about uh, the book Planet on Fire, and then we are going to read an article about the uh, late great Prince Philip, spiritual successor to Denzel Washington's hit film Man on Fire. That's right. First the man, then the, pl- <laughs> then the planet. It's actually it's a uh, Weltgeist on fire. It's a planet-sized ghost on fire. Weltgeist's world ghost. Yeah, it's Hegel. Oh, um, there you go. Yeah, Hegel. He made all these big, big flappy clothes that you could buy. Yeah, yeah. and stop, stop putting my interests together. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, this is the first news item. It comes out of the U.S., uh, which is that, did you know that mm. a labor shortage is forcing chains like Subway and Dunkin' Donuts to uh, cut hours, close dining rooms, and push employees to work harder than ever? This is from Business Insider. That they could pay more? Well, no, because that would mean the jobs would go away if they paid more. But, but there's a labor shortage. They, they could pay think- the people who want to... Maybe make work. they could automate it, or, or maybe they could encourage more people to have babies. I don't see how they could solve they, this problem. They could, they could make the money that they get paid more to make it a more attractive job to work at. I don't know. I don't understand how this... This is an unsolvable problem. It looks like the quick service industry has been destroyed by the stimulus. They could that is them. right. Yep, that's right. Um, they could just pay. No, R.I.P. to Subway. Yeah, that's you right. can now only get a four inch at Subway yeah. because of uh, the labor shortage. Yeah, that's right. So uh, yeah. it says, I think everyone in the industry, it's not unique to Subway, is struggling to keep or- stores open from a lack We've of staff. We've had to bring back Jared due to a labor shortage. <laughs> One last job. <laughs> no longer can we be high on the hog with non-pedophile staff. <laughs> we had to. We've had to make a Subway an adults-only zone. Yeah, we've um, we've. We've done the Suicide Squad thing. We've brought Jared back, but we've implanted a small explosive at the base of his skull. Subway Jared, but played by Jared Leto. Um, <laughs> that's right. So uh, now they're basically decli- refraining from opening dining rooms because even though there's lots of customer demand, no one's mm. willing to work for those wages. Isn't it part of the labor shortage also that people like uh, line cooks have vastly disproportionately died of COVID? Well, I don't see how that's connected. Okay. Hmm. You know. Yeah, because they're in the Suicide Squad. Because well, the explosive happened, in the base of their skull went if, off. If I, if, I remember, <laughs> if I remember correctly, the story people always tell about the Black Death that I believe Eleanor Yonaga says is not quite true and is in fact very exaggerated mm. about how like the Black Death sort of caused actually st- standards of living to rise because it r- removed a lot of peasants from the labor force and their labor became more valuable. Yeah. I, um, I think what happened is Jared of Fogel, the village pedophile, has been released from Yon Gaul in order to fill the orders of cereal trenches of mutton yes. for the townsfolk. <laughs> um, yes, uh, so stimulus. So one McDonald's franchisee said the stimulus check and unemployment are killing the workforce. The main oh, that thing sounds like the opposite of what they do. Killing the workforce. Fast food franchise holders are up there with landlords in terms of people who, irrespective of their sort of their class position, just are made unpleasant by their job. Yeah. Right? Like Oh, for sure. 
Oh Absolutely. boy, did I Small think you were going to say pirates. something that was going to be way more beeped out than that. <laughs> Ooh, Are the really first be- people I'm, I'm who be- will be... <laughs> I'm, I'm being very careful yeah. not to make any actionable yeah. threats against named persons other than on the Twitch stream. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, uh, it's so, legal if you do it on stream, baby. Uh, before we move on, uh, Laurie, I just want to uh, turn to you. <laughs> Your Honor, it was poggers. This is, this is something that we're sort of noticing, right? That they're... There, even though there's demand for labor, there is some wage stagnation towards the bottom of the pyramid. Yeah, yeah. It seems to be a common feature that keeps popping up time and time again. And everyone is extraordinarily perplexed about it. But, but I, you know, I, I'm the same. I, I, I look at this stimulus package and I think this is inevitable that it will viscerate all these low-paid jobs. And I just can't, I can't get my head around it. Can you guys? Yeah, no, it's just, hmm. I think that, the, well, you know what? I mean, look, as, as someone who owns four McDonald's franchises, uh, I need to make sure that I send my son uh, to go to Bard College where uh, he can mm. study how to be a TV comedy writer and write, Shakespeare. and write a show about microaggressions. I mean, listen, like, maybe if, we, if we're doing medievalism, right, and we're just doing Midden's Advent again, maybe the, the solution here is for Subway former sandwich artists to form some kind of guild... Yeah, to advance their shared interests. Some kind of a sandwich journeyman, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. If we could have some kind of system of sandwich apprenticeships, journeyman masters, uh, perhaps they could have like a hall where they could like yeah. do business in. Yeah, well, get some nice but then there'll glass. be a big, uh, a big conspiracy that, of course, about the sandwich artists, the mutton, the mutton shop. So as not, so as not to pay the sandwich, the sandwich artisans their fair wage has brought, <laughs> has brought unto us these moor who have not even studied the quadrivium. <laughs> And yet, they claim to be able to construct a sandwich. I doubt it very much. Mm. As, as Adam Smith said, seldom do two sandwich artists meet other than to concoct a conspiracy against the public. Uh, mm. lo- I love Mercia. I love a trencher of lamb. I love good, good Mercian sandwich artists. Liketh it not, yonder the drawbridge. That's right. <laughs> it's it, it be it simple. Um, so, uh, that's, but that's that one little quick hit up top. Number two quick hit. Uh, this is really fun. Did you know that apparently there were actually no dogged reporters and um, uh, uh, scurrilous left-wing podcasts involved in uh, talking about the Greensill story uh, for the last uh, one to several years? Apparently, the Mail on Sunday is now floating a theory uh, that actually there is the only way... To explain uh, David Cameron being exposed as a moron and a crook, uh, the only way that yeah, the only way that this could possibly have been happened, uh, this could possibly have happened, is that a left wing element, a fifth column, a group of fifth columnists, l- fanatically loyal to Keir Starmer of the Labour Party, has infiltrated the civil service and forced David Cameron to try to get the British government involved in several pyramid schemes. I'm just imagining. Anyone being fanatically loyal to Keir Starmer, including Keir Starmer. Yeah, Keir Starmer's like, I don't, I don't understand this. We even we don't have five columns. We've not even got one column. It's just <laughs> partridge. That's a job. That's a job. That's trouble with the civil service now because it's creeping Sharia. They've got five pillars because of Islam. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, <laughs> like it's extraordinary to see the picture in the mail. Was it today? Mm, yeah. The drawn of the mo- so there's a picture of the mole. Someone has been paid. To draw a picture of the mo- it's completely red and doesn't it have a cap on a Corbyn star with a big cap. hammer and sickle, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Keir Starmer's hammer and sickle Labour Party. <laughs> That's right. <Yes. laughs> 
Um, it's, it's completely bizarre. That's it's this story that's being pushed by uh, Glenn Owen primarily. He's the political editor of the Daily Mail, which basically just says, ah, all this stuff, this um. All of this sort of ineptitude and corruption at the heart of government. Um, the only explanation for this uh, could be, again, not that uh, the conservative party is a, a sort of backbiting nest of, of the equally sort of criminal and stupid vipers. But no, mm. we must be being betrayed from the inside by one of those lefty Remainer civil servants. And I mean, if that, that avails Keir Starmer to the extent of getting him to 29%, mm-hmm. so mm. that's really some leaking. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. uh, golf politics. To be fair, being the political editor at the Daily Mail is a very difficult job, because you've you got to think about your audience, right? You're writing for a group of people who have to be kept furious at all costs, but not mm. too furious, such that they have that massive stroke that they're going to have while they're reading one of your articles. It's a difficult balance. There have to be just, just the right number of Muslims giving your house price cancer, but not one too many. <laughs> Otherwise, all your readership is going to die of that huge coronary. Mm. That's right. I'm just very into the idea of like Keir Starmer as a sort of Fethullah Gulen figure. <laughs> what? I mean, a- every failing of the state is due to his network of informants. All right, what's the voice? Every institution. <laughs> well, what if Keir Starmer was a Turkish yeah. man? I guess. Well, so, but the, the interesting thing is, <laughs> be- I welcome the prime minister's remarks, but I would I would call him to go further and consider <laughs> encircling Vienna. <laughs> no, so, but it, the, the Gulen comparison, I think, is a good one, if only because, like, of, of the many disagreements between uh, Erdogan and Gulen. They actually overlap, uh, overlap rather, on quite a bit. Like, overlap. You, shut up. Yeah. They, uh, we already are changing the name of the group DM to what Milo said earlier. Um, yeah, they overlap on the crucial issue of Vienna. Yeah, no, they, they overlap on, on on sort of many issues, including like you know the role of of, of Islam in Turkish society and so on. Mm. Uh, it's very funny then that if Keir Starmer is British Gulan, uh, it says in one of the articles that Keir that Keir Starmer himself provided the first major clue that uh, there is a labor-friendly leaker in the civil service, they think a cabinet office. They said, quote, this is from the Mail on Sunday, Ministers and officials have become unnerved by the way Starmer kept preempting major policy announcements with his own identical proposals. Awesome. <laughs> with his own identical proposals? <laughs> God, it's, it's, ch- it's, it's chess. Everyone's playing such an incredible game of chess. They're playing chess on the moon. I love that, like, Keir Starmer is, like, fucking, uh, like, Mr. Bean or, like, Air Bud or something. Well, like, the stuff he's doing is so stupid that everyone thinks he's a genius. They're like, how is he doing it? He's doing the absolute he's, last thing we would expect him to do. Yeah. <laughs> he's being a better Tory than the Tories, and it must be because he has inside information. I'm just I'm so struck by this idea of like a Starmerist deep state. I'm really I really, 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 really hope this works out because, right, there is something so bleakly funny about the idea that the British state would not uh, as John McDonnell said, like execute Corbyn and McDonnell in football stadiums, but it might for Keir Starmer for being too much of a hardline communist. He's, he's too good at being a Tory, which, as we all know, is the way to be a government. Um, I mean, I, I, yeah, the army's got to step in. Something's got to be done about this Starmerist tendency. <laughs> which it's victories, you know, uncountable. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I'm trying to count them. I can't. <laughs> oh man, and, and it's true. Like, but one of the things is like, 
what this has basically done is now, if you're a Daily Mail reader, mm. um, the Greensill story, which is like, you know, this like toff that you probably kind of hate is wasting your taxpayer money. Mm. Well, what's happened now is uh, the government supporting press has essentially run interference with the government. And like, and basically you can be like, oh, it's a mole in it. That's a bleeding mm. I've always hated moles, little blind cunts. <laughs> Coming over here from underground... Right, our ground where British people should live, not moles. <laughs> That's right. Anyway, uh, a bunch of a bunch of interviews with like sad red wall voters who are like, well, they said they were going to bring back the industries. They were going to build a consent manufacturing factory up here. <laughs> they said they were going to start making consent again. But Chubbies, we don't make moles in this country anymore. Uh, <laughs> uh, Laurie, before we move on, I want to ask sort of how this. I said this- it was a Russian mole in MI6. Why couldn't we have one of our moles in MI6? What's wrong with British moles then? <laughs> I want to ask how this how this sort of little bit of very desperate and strange consent manufacturing strikes you. I think it, more and more with the Daily Mail editorial line when it comes to trying to explain away these things as to why there seems to be this persistent messing up on the part of the government, it either it sometimes reeks of like a bunch of lads who are seven cans deep who are just, they're looking back to an old golden era and they're just trying to rekindle that. And they're looking over at the Times, who time and time again are sort of acting as this astonishing outrider, almost to the Labour Party, in going for the corruption element that the government is looking at. And you've got these Daily Mail people just sort of scrambling around, and there's cans smashing around all over the floor. And then coming up with this, though, is just, it's just brilliant, right? But surely they did it for you guys. Yeah, I think so. They mm. must have done. Yeah, there's actually a Trash Future fifth column at the Daily Mail. Yeah. <laughs> they were planting very funny quotes for us to read. Uh, that's right. Basically, it's, it's Hussein is not here right now. He's at his job at the, at yeah. the Daily Mail. Mischievous Saracen, yeah. Hussein Kazani. Uh, if Glenn Owen takes off a Mission Impossible mask, and it's just Hussein. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was very suspicious when that column started with, um, hi. <laughs> so I, I want to do a really quick startup, which is I thought was quite fun. Uh, the startup is related to our later topic. The startup is called App Harvest. Um, Milo. Um, yeah, is it something to do with Farmville? Mm, not Farmville, but farming. I'm going to give that to you. Oh. Uh, ah, Laurie, the original Farmville. <laughs> Laurie, it's called App Harvest. It's to do with farming. What do you think it does? Like recycling the, the empty homes of all the British farmers that have now all gone bust. <laughs> Uh, no, well, because the fucking moles. It does <laughs> <laughs> come under me farm. They're eating everything from the bottom up. Yeah, it does involve repurposing large empty buildings, but no. I've had to buy a load of illegal Nazi weaponry from World War Two <laughs> to fight them off. Yeah, uh, uh, repurposing repurposing your barn as like a dormitory for coders. Uh, mm. it's nothing to do with farming. Uh, but they say our process for. You fucking said it was something to do with yeah, farming. I said, yeah. but you said you didn't say anything to do with farming. Oh, when I said that, I was lying. Sorry, we're doing a who's on first situation here. God damn. It is to do with farming. Um, our process, they say, is better for both people and planet. At App Harvest, we dream big and do better. We put words into action, nurture into nature, tech into technique, and growth into everything we touch. Tech into oh. technique? Yeah, that's pretty good oh, writing, I right? I really don't like that. I think it's... it's the it, it's repurposing empty farm buildings and using them to I don't know 
hoard the like torso and head mannequins that VR goggles are placed on when they mm. want to sell them. <laughs> How about uh, like hooking up your your tractor or your combine harvester and using the engine of it to mine Bitcoin? Mm. Uh, all of this mm. would be good ideas. No, um, they bring together great minds from Appalachia and around the world to transform the future of agriculture and plant the seeds for a better tomorrow. Is it like is it like a an app system that sort of like tracks your like a period tracker but for See, farming? Here's the thing: it's a very bad name because, as far as I can tell, very little to do with apps. It's just sort of a technologically enabled. Uh, indoor... Are you suggesting that all these companies just use sort of buzzwords <laughs> and actually none of them really do anything at all? <laughs> so what they've done is they have uh, they are in they're based in Kentucky. They have been invested in heavily by J.D. Vance, uh, the uh, idiot who wrote Hillbilly Elegy. They went public. That's why he's allowed to write it. (laughs) They went public as a SPAC. Um, J.D. Vance left its board under a bit of a cloud for tweeting about the Great Replacement or whatever. He claims something else (laughs) happened. Um, Uh Some nonsense. Uh, and the, and friend of the show Quantian says basically uh, they grow cucumbers in a big warehouse, uh, but without needing to handle the details like uh, packaging and getting them to consumer, and somehow make a very large uh, return uh, doing this. Uh, also, it's a spec that collapsed forty four percent after the lockup period expired. It fucking cratered. Now, I mean, if an, if a bunch of people tell me we're growing cucumbers in that building and we made, I don't know half a million pounds this month doing it. To my mind, the word for that is crime. <laughs> well, here's oh, the we've thing. got one very large investor. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the thing, right? This is actually, looking at this, right, it seems like it's just a hydroponics facility that sort of likes to talk a lot about, oh, we're using AI, we're in the circular economy. We're nobody's ever used hydroponics yeah, to do Smoking on that cucumber that killed Saddam. So, um, and I think the <laughs> And it's important to note that, you know, yeah, they're growing lots of cucumbers and tomatoes and trying to revolutionize the food system now. But when, um, when, when, and this is now a matter of time, probably Kentucky legalizes weed, they'll be, let's say, in an, oppor- in an opportune moment to retool very quickly. <laughs> um, but so the, what I think is interesting about this rather is actually uh, the its ownership. So after J.D. Vance stepped down, I looked into who else owns it. And the SPAC that took it public was called Inclusive Capital Partners, hmm. and it was formed by a man named Jeff Ubbin. Uh, <laughs> Excuse me? Yeah, Jeff Ubbin. Jeff Ubbin. Yeah. Uh, who used to be <laughs> Jeff Ubbin. Used to, to be Mr. in charge. Mr. Mrs. Ubbin. Yes, that's right. Uh, who used to be in charge of, uh, of, yes, the Value Act, which was a San Francisco-based hedge fund, and they were really, really sort of popular for being an activist investor who goes into a company and then like basically does a bunch of crazy shit to it to make it worse to work for and more expensive. Um, hmm. Which is great. Uh, so, But he's basically had a change of heart. So Ubbin, Ubbin says... Yeah, he's had one of his trademark <laughs> changes of heart. Uh, <laughs> uh, has founded Inclusive Capital Partners as a SPAC to try to like take public a company that was going to be okay. doing social good. Um, <clears throat> and he says... In 20 years, it's never come up to like social issues have never come up in any board meeting I've ever been in. So that's interesting, isn't it? I'm sitting there complicit in that trend, by the way. So hmm. uh, he's basically said, I've based, I've been, I have been, if for my part, as the manager of, uh, as the leader of Value Act Partners, I have done my bit to make the world a worse place. Anyway, it's hmm. very important that I'm able to be, uh, that I am leading the charge to fix it because democratization of finance, as far as I'm concerned, means uh, me, but I'm nice, essentially. Okay. 
Yeah. Well, I, yeah, well, I'm i sold. Kind of the theme we pulled out from the notes here is me, but I'm nice <laughs> still being in power. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, you get to, uh, now. Uh, do, do, I still need to be in charge, though. At no point will I stop being in charge. Yeah. yeah. That's right. no. what, what would a green recovery be without Ubbin? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> you suggesting an ovenless green recovery? Uh, we got I a, don't think so. We got a bun in the oven here. Yeah, that's right. And the oven is green recovery. So look, before I go on to um other other things that Ubbin is involved in, uh other things. <laughs> he's got his finger in many pies that have been baked in many ovens. Uh, Laurie, um you we I see quite a bit of this, right? People uh wanting to atone for years in the in dirty industries, sort of trying to then atone by making millions in a clean industry. So how does that strike you? Well, I, f- firstly, I'm on the website now and I just I can't get my head around a why it's App Harvest because it's Appalachia. Uh, yeah, right? there we go. That's why. And also so App is a technology t- word. It's a double meaning, nice. I think. Okay. Yeah. okay. Mm. And then and. It, as far as I can tell, it's just they're, just, yeah, they're just growing a load of things. And I don't understand how any of this is in any way. It's just farming. It's just, exactly. It's just farming. And they put App on the front and then the website is green. Yeah. Well, they say they have AI. Oh. Although we've talked, we talked about something like this before, <laughs> we've managed to make farming more racist. E- Egyptian pharaoh <laughs> having like the the uh, the floodplains of the Nile and the ri- the rich silty soil being good for growing uh, crops. Explained to him, and he's like, "And this is a tech company, you say?" <laughs> <laughs> so they say that they have lots of these sort of technologies that they've built into to uh, their company mm. in order to make it smart and AI driven, much like. Uh, that uh, fake box that uh, claimed you to be you could grow food in. Oh, you know, yeah. The MIT the Media food, Lab the box. Food computer. The food computer. That's the one. Hmm. This seems to be like that, but very, very big. Yeah. And it does seem, on first blush, to successfully uh, grow food. But it is just a hydroponic inside farm. Yep. Something which has existed for a long time. Yep. It's usually mm-hmm. uh, for something cooler. Yeah, uh, that's so, right. Uh, this goes on. This is an article from Bloomberg. Uh, Ubbin's new venture is not only one of personal atonement, he believes the same dislocation between valuation and opportunity exists today as he did at the start of investing, his investing career. Mm-hmm. Shareholder-first capitalism, he says, made businesses so good at maximizing profit that there's little left to squeeze. <laughs> Shareholder-first capitalism yeah. or capitalism. Yeah. They didn't do that before, of course. Back in the um, back when Marx was writing with linen coats, it was all use value, baby. No exchange value mm-hmm. here. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Um, uh, he says, shareholder first capitalism has made businesses so good at maximizing profits that there's li- very little left to squeeze. Uh, it, that's what Marx said in Capital Volume 3. It has also left many of them ill-equipped to ad- react to other issues investors care about. We've moved into this new era where stock prices are reflecting environmental and social failings increasingly, even as their financial returns are okay. No, we're not. No, we're not. That's just not true. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. Um, yeah, so- no one buys this, the stock of uh, Shell, for example. Jeff Ubbin, for example. <laughs> Does buy the stock of Shell. He owns, I believe, five percent of Exxon Mobil. Huh. huh. No. Yeah. <laughs> which, that mo- <laughs> which he invests well, on mobile. Exxon Mobile phones is yeah. the name. They make mobile phones. So, it's a technology yeah. company. Basically, he he invested in a, uh, he invested in the company so that he would be able to sit on the board and tell them to reduce their greenhouse gases. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm going to own you by giving you my money. Yeah, <laughs> entryism. Cool. Yeah, he's trying to do entryism as a nice man. To a big bad company, and therefore fix it by putting a nice man in charge, who also oh, happens Fabians. to be able, who also must make millions of dollars a year from this. By the way, absolutely, mm. yeah. Um, um, and so the uh, Exxon, as a result of this, has announced the creation of Exxon Mobil Low Carbon Solutions, where it will invest as much as. <laughs> th- <laughs> oh, Alice, are you, uh, is this is this happening earlier in the episode than usual? 
I'm sorry. Yeah, no, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> Exxon also announced the creation of ExxonMobil Low Carbon Solutions and said it would invest a whole $3 billion into the group by 2025. And wow. what percentage of the market cap is that? <laughs> oh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. High, I presume. Oh, I bet it's very high. high. Yeah. yeah. Billion. That's like the biggest number I can think of reasonably absolutely so. yeah and they're they're a small family-owned business so uh, yeah the, if you consider yeah, the oven family yeah, yeah by the ovens yeah, that's um, right. yeah and they want to reduce their greenhouse gas output by as much as 20 percent uh from their 2016 levels by 2025 so laurie why did you even bother writing this book <laughs> well I, yeah i i'm not really sure anymore this is this is an absolute curveball for me this oven guy and app harvest is a b corp as well yeah i've just seen so it means that they, they measure their social good uh, which I imagine is considerable and not just uh, marketing. Mm. Yeah. Well, we're done. Yeah. So I'm done. And I'm, you know, to anyone who's listening to this, don't buy the book and just go Google Oven. Yeah. Jeffrey W. Oven. What's the, do we know what the W? J. Wubbin. Yeah. Let's do it. It's the, <laughs> same. Dub, wubba dub, dub, it's the same word. It's just, uh, it's just, it's just Wubbin. <laughs> uh, w. Wubbin. So here's the, this is not, uh, Wanna double oven? this is not Jeff Wubbin's first uh, green <laughs> investment. Do you want to know? What his biggest green investment is? Oh, it'll probably be like oh. fucking uh, Lockheed Martin. We talked about this company before. Was oh, it the Bean Shoes? Nicola. Oh yeah, he's <laughs> hey. a big early. He's a big early Nicola booster. Nicola make like off-brand Teslas that don't work. No. And normally Tesla have the fucking market on that, but yeah, well they work when you roll them down a hill. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so yeah, that's that's how uh, capital is reacting to the uh, ongoing uh, climate crisis uh, with a bunch of uh, companies that are varying degrees of scammy. Oh, and and we got here. So if you Google Google Wubbin and uh, and and this Nikola company, I've not heard of that before. It's my fault. An early Nikola investor, Wubbin, says the startup went public too soon as it grapples with accusations of fraud. It doesn't look good for the lad, does it? No. no. It, yeah, if, if anything, I cared too much. Yeah. J-Wobs. Yep. Yeah. Um. So. <laughs> I love that these guys can just move from failure to failure and wreck the planet, and the best we can do is, like, make fun of their names, yep. which are very yeah. funny. Capitalism uh, failing to reckon with its own contradictions is definitely a very bad news for uh, that uh, Mr. K. Marx guy yeah. who wrote that really <laughs> pro-capitalism book, Das Capital, baby. Yeah, he loved it. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah, so uh, that's the... That's the Wubbin moment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a classic Wubbin moment. Yeah, give me some Wubbin. <laughs> yeah, uh, so I, mean, I think give me some Wubbin is probably a pretty good episode title. <laughs> sorry, Laurie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm so no, sorry please. to do this to you. Uh, I'll change my name to Wubbin yeah. so that then I can get the best of both worlds. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's like, you know, sorry, uh, it's, I've been, I'm rich, so I'm afraid I have to be involved. I created all the problems. I have to be involved in everything. Mm. I will never mm. stop continuing to fuck with the world, and it's going to be my half-ass climate change acceleration is going to be only be made worse by my half-ass climate change prevention. Yeah, yeah. Yes. This is this is why Trump is my favorite billionaire because all of his investments are just dumb guy shit. It's all just like mm. I'm building a hotel. Every surface is going to have my face on it. Okay. <laughs> There's going to be an steaks, elevator. It's wine. going to be made completely out of steaks. Okay. Every single one, well done. They're all going to have quotes in there about people that I hate. 
Okay, people people have said very unkind things about me, actually. You can't imagine it, but they do. They do do that. And I'm going to have those on steaks in the elevator, my meat my meat-evator, I'm going to call it. And it's going to be it's going to be beautiful. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, better than this fucking how am guy. I, how am I transferring the Ramadan madness yeah. to people around me? <laughs> the the meat-evator is what you get in at exactly 9 p.m. So, anyway, <laughs> that is that is app harvest. I don't want to spend too long on yeah. it, but just I I just the the story of Wubbin I think is very. <laughs> it's called the Wubbin Chronicles. The story of Wubbin, I think, is McLubbin? very illustrative of what we're going to talk about about your book, Laurie. Because the question is, mm. how is capital reacting, and how should the left, such as it is, uh, itself react? Right, and capital's mm. reacting. Capital's yeah. bargaining stage yeah. of grief. I'm actually, right? reading it on the front of the book here, it says "Planet on Fire: The Story of Wubbin." Yeah, that's uh, right. <laughs> Uh, so I think that's why I, I sort of brought up App Harvest. The company itself seems, I don't know, fine. A lot of marketing around its tech nonsense, but it, mm. it's not that unrealistic to hydroponically grow cucumbers they, or whatever. They have not managed to fail to grow a cucumber yeah, yet. You're growing them inside because of the fucking moles. Although, again, if it's at some point released in the future, it's like, oh, it turns out that like all those cucumbers they just went and bought from Kroger or whatever. I yeah. also wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> um Anyway, so I've got that kooky neighbor. Yeah, I've got a few facts here. Did you know that the energy now used by Bitcoin alone is equal to all the energy generated by solar power in the world? I heard that and it blackpilled <laughs> me so much. So uh, every solar panel that's been built has basically now uh, had its like generation capacity turned to something that has all exchange value, zero use value. Now that's yeah, epic. And which is like only useful as an exchange value for buying uh, art that does the same thing but worse, drugs and child pornography. Not even that right? anymore. It's d different coins are used for those things now. Bitcoin is literally just... You could have drugs coins. Yeah, it's, you, yeah. Bitcoin is basically just like owned by lots of institutional investors and big companies now as a hedge against inflation. Drugs and child pornography both have far more use value than the other stuff cryptocurrency is used for. <laughs> I've never bought either, so I don't know how, but yeah, do you really not use Bitcoin to buy drugs anymore? No, it's too. Uh, it's basically gotten too too big and, and, and largely traceable. <laughs> it's gotten too mainstream. Yeah, it's gotten too mainstream, so they, people use other coins. Yeah. Uh, for that kind of thing now. Uh, yeah, Bitcoin, literally, coin now. Bitcoin literally is just a speculative investment that's held as a hedge against inflation by institutions like Grayscale. That's oh, but it. it's, it's something Tesla. that Elon Musk can tweet about being epic. Yeah. So um, mm. I think uh, uh, President Xi, please, most of these Bitcoin uh, mining rigs are in China. Please satellite drop tungsten rods directly onto all of them. No, no, no. Riley, the, the repressive state capacity of the People's Republic of China can only be turned on Uyghurs. Uh, but what this should illustrate, right, is that there's this old thought experiment, right, about an AI that goes rogue and then and only manufactures paper clips. Right. Yeah. It's it's a hmm. it's this parable about AI where it's like, well, yeah, it's about Microsoft Clippy and what <laughs> the worry is that this AI will just keep going and turn the whole world into paper clips. Hmm. The thing is. We already have that. It's just a so it is just social machinery. It's not mm. uh, lines of computer code or much of the social machinery is encoded in lines of computer code. But nevertheless, mm. is that we have a distributed social mach social machinery that does just maximize paper clips in the form of exchange value rather than use value. Yeah, it maximizes line. Yeah, but as we mm. mentioned in a previous TF season finale, the line is no longer connected yeah. to anything in any meaningful way. Yeah. So it just maximizes line. So again, um. Uh, with that uh, sort of as a by way of introduction, 
can we talk a little bit about how how we got here and why this is specifically a problem to do with social relations rather than one form of technology or another? I'm looking at Laurie. So we, tell a, we tell a story in a book um, which is starting to be told more and more. Um, and it's about Easter Island, uh, famous at least in sort of the Western cultural imaginary because of the, the head and torso statues that are on the island. Um, and it's just like a classic story in, in environmentalism, at least Western environmentalism, that if you look around at the mess we're in now, um, it can be ascribed to, as you say, us depending on bad technologies like fossil fuels, etc., but also our innate selfishness and short-termism, right? And Easter Island purports to sort of sum that up perfectly because you had this island that's, that's really out, disconnected from it anywhere. It's, it's a, a very long way from any, any continent. And um, when Westerners first arrived in the 1700s, um, in fact, I think 299 years ago the other day, um, they found this place with all these extraordinary statues with a civilization that they thought had sort of fallen to pieces. And a number of people still tell this story, have told this story in the last few decades that what had happened is that so unthinkingly and because their technologies, including the way that they, they move these statues to different parts of the island, had led them to unthinkingly destroy the natural environment upon which their society was possible. And they cut down all the trees, right? And there's a seminal moment where there would have been one last tree, but someone still cut that down. And then they weren't able to grow food and the whole, the whole society collapsed. And um, Killed a fucking mole, so. <laughs> Showed those cunts. Moles died. It was a disaster. And I'll do this next bit as Adam Curtis. The, the, Very <laughs> the, strange thing the, happened. Yeah, well, the story was a sensation. And its authors became heroic figures. <laughs> and it, it captured the sort of... Yeah, <laughs> it like grasped environmental imaginary of, well, this is it. Like the, the mm. Easter Island is a sort of a small island-sized version of, of the world. And we've got, in the same way that they couldn't escape from the island and turn on each other, we can't escape from this planet. Um, however much you think you can, you know, go and set up shop on Mars like Elon Musk things. But mm. the problem with that story is it's completely untrue. Mm-hmm. And actually what happened was that the society developed a sort of steady state relationship with nature, had cultural norms and other things that stopped the destruction of the environment. The trees weren't even that important for what they were doing. Um, and in, in fact, what had led the society to fall to pieces was the mm-hmm. successive slave raids that came after that first Western contact and the smallpox that they brought and then the sexual exploitation of many people on the island. And then the fact that it was taken over and turned into a, a, a sheep farm for a Scottish company. Yeah. And huh. those people didn't just do that for a laugh. They did it because they were compelled there by the huge global economic systems that were growing up around that time and have dominated us to this day. But Laurie, where would they be without the Easter Island Railway? <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think like, this is a lot of very stupid people uh, like Jared Diamond like to talk about these things as inevitabilities, kind of tragic stories emerging from interactions of human nature and the environment around us while sort of ignoring the social technologies that are at play driving them so that in 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 this almost you know deterministic geographical deterministic view of the world um that sort of and that is that basically is a kind of malthusianism a sort of a tragedy of this yes well, go it's, ahead, go it's ahead. not even it's not even that jared diamond's just like um Calvinism yeah, with yeah. extra Well, he's, steps, he's Calvinism. Right? He's like, Calvinism for if remember, just like um, uh, whenever I see Steven Pinker, I always remember this idiot 
uh, did a study on whether or not racism is going up or down in America on the basis of people Googling the N-word. And whenever, Frank Sinatra. <laughs> whenever I see uh, uh, Jared Diamond, I remember that one of his big arguments in his book is that the world is the way it is because uh, North America, because the Americas were easy to conquer because they're oriented vertically, whereas uh, Eurasia was destined to succeed because it's oriented horizontally. What if people were Googling the N-word because they were actually getting less racist and they were looking for synonyms? Yeah. Uh, so, well, we can't is, say that anymore. So this is this is what this is always what I, I remember when I think of Jared Diamond. And it's, it's a kind of it's a form of whiny Malthusianism that sort of ignores all of the things that are sort of inconvenient for it or not fun for a geographer to think about, really. Mm. No, the irresistibility of geographic. <laughs> Indeed. Um, and so there is there is this. There is this mode of thinking that I think must, you know, be be, you know, issued, I think, by by the left. I think that it is not difficult for us to issue it. Um, and we and instead have to think about, well, we don't want to be Easter Island. I'd, I'd rather not. I'm sure it's lovely, but I'd rather not be that way. Hmm. So we have to ask ourselves questions like, OK, well, what is what is eco-socialism? What is a what is a green transformation? Right. Hmm. Yeah, and, and in the book, we're saying that um, the politics that have exploded out into the open over the last few years, which themselves are the sort of latest iteration of a number of movements that are coming together. Um, uh, and, and this explosion has often been associated with the concept of a Green New Deal. And that is a, an amazing, a genuinely amazing positive moment, one that we, we have to, to look at and be, be criti- critical about in many ways, particularly in progressive circles but also sees a huge moment of opportunity and potential change. And what we're saying in the book is that you, to, to build on that agenda, to sort of widen and deepen it, you've got to then explore a range of deeper changes to our systems, to the systems that led people to Easter Island and the, the disaster that happened there, but then the systems that are leading us to global environmental disaster. Mm. And that we, we, are, we have this extraordinary opportunity. It's demanded by the environmental situation, but also the horrendous social and economic fallout of the way these systems work. And we've got to be changing those systems. And there has to be this re-enchantment of politics, as you, as you can say they're already st- starting to be, that begins to make these changes across a, a wide range of, this, of a, the, the social and economic systems that, that dominate our lives and are leading us over the edge uh, on the environment. Mm. And, and in the UK, I mean, much of the sort of action on this is largely sort of the Tory, Tory government sort of, you know, trying to like uh, rearrange old spending and do marketing to make it look as though they're doing mm. things while sort of, you know, handing as much money to like personal friends of you know, Matt Hancock or whatever as they possibly can. Listen, if it's not if he's not green, why is his name Green yeah. Sill? <laughs> Matt Hancock's <laughs> pub landlord knows a lot about solar energy. <laughs> and so for example, right, like the, they are recreating the, the UK as far as I understand it, they are uh, recreating a new green investment bank, but the last time the green investment bank funded a major project, it was UK offshore wind, and then all of that all that offshore wind was then immediately privatized and handed out at pennies on the pound to a uh, private company. And in lots of cases to private companies owned by other com- other countries' <laughs> state energy providers. Indeed, yes, yeah. And then shortly thereafter, it was cancelled out by a Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Charlie's <laughs> <laughs> now got me building these big Easter Island stone heads. Green <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> energy, they yeah. call it. Uh, uh, stone Solar powered. Yeah, stone head currency. Yeah. And so, stone hedge. So we we can sort of understand sort of that's happening here, but in the US, it's a bit of a different story, right, Laurie? Mm-hmm. Mm. 
It is. And we again, we should look at what the Biden administration is starting to talk about, has already achieved in passing one stimulus package and is talking about with the next stimulus package as a significant moment. And I think it's, it's really easy to, you know, if you're in progressive circles and particularly if you've been doing stuff around the environment to, to kind of have got to the point now where anything is anything that seems remotely positive is just cannot be believed as anything that's positive. And this is a really significant moment that huge amounts of money that are starting to be appropriate to the scale of the disaster are being talked about. And and that's it, it's a big positive. And, and another really big positive that we've got to bear in mind here is that that has happened partly because of the success of an increasingly mature and well-organized ecosystem of influence in and around the left in the US. Mm. And that we have to look at that and just take a moment to appreciate how those things have set up and how they work. Before then, we'll talk about it in a second, I'm sure, we dwell on all the horrendous things that still are nowhere near being done. <laughs> of course. Mm. I mean, look, I think also when we talk about things like the amounts of money sort of that are being uh, dedicated to these things, it's worth remembering what money is. Right. It's mm. uh, it is it, 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 money and finance are essentially a way of planning the allocation of resources and labor of, of identifying what what projects get worked on to the point where if you hand someone a five pound note, you are sort of you are allocating labor to the purchase of whatever it is that you're buying, for a example. Socialist explaining what money is. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> and yet you receive money on Patreon. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I, I have something for this, though, which is that, like, I, I feel as if the future that's being sketched out here, and this is the thing that I'm slightly more cautious about, is one in which... We are more successful at addressing the the oncoming climate disaster, right? Uh, but it's only going to be within the framework of the same people exercising power. Like, you have more or less a royal court. Uh, you have a natural party of government. And you have sort of various different advisors that circulate around it. And okay, maybe we've been successful at advising Biden that, like, it's actually very good for his ego. Uh, to be thought of as being progressive on this, and that's very helpful, and so he'll do it, and that's good. But um, I, I don't know that there's a challenge to power there in and of mm. itself. Mm. I think yeah, it's, that's a good way of, of looking at it. And I would say that there are three tests that need to be made explicit that all of the the potential success of this gets hinged on. And I think that by the end of this year, particularly with this UN climate conference that's being hosted here in the UK. Um, here in Glasgow. In Glasgow, um, the, we're going to stab could... the climate. Yeah, if you're going to fix yeah. the climate, I would start there because like, that fucking sucks. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. Somebody's been destroying the climate, and no cunt leaves here till we find out what cunt did it. <laughs> climate change, Francis Begbie. Powerful. Right. That is going to be the desperate last attempt of the of of the British government to try and get a result at that conference. I'm sure of it. But, but within that context, you, you could get this situation where there's a lot of black slapping, you know, America's back, baby, a lot of people mm. sign up to net zero targets. And those the three tests that I think need to be pushed are around consumption, they're around power, and they're around equality. And on the, the first one, on the consumption, you, you ha- this is where you have to appreciate here that this is not just about the climate. That's one important subset of an overall global environmental emergency. And the kind of a nightmare scenario here is that we... There is this massive global decarbonisation effort, and it does bring along, say, countries in the global south, so they're not just going and, you know, it's sort of a green imperialism that's ripping out parts of the global south. Say all that works as well. 
we'd still be screwed because we depleted all the soils and we're killing off all the biodiversity and all that kind of stuff, right? And so you have to ask yourself the question, this is the first test around consumption. Um, all the things that you're trying to do to, to sort out this environmental crisis or whatever you may call it, mainstream political leader, mm. is that actually going to keep us within the safe environmental limits that we know we've shot over on the climate system with nitrogen, with biodiversity, that kind of stuff. And there is a huge question there as to whether we can basically, this is what the mainstream strategy is talking about, swap all the dirty stuff for clean stuff quick enough at all and while also continuing to, to demand that everyone on earth has to have the same kind of consumption style life that you, know, you get in the, the wealthiest, most consumptive yeah. parts of America. We, we have to have our treats. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I'm very worried about anything that might threaten my treats. Mm-hmm. That's right. I, uh, I, I, I am actually quite worried about that. <laughs> <laughs> Are you telling me that just I mean, as I start earning actual money, we're going to be not allowed treats anymore? Yo, what the <laughs> fuck? <laughs> I mean, the, the thing that I think about in terms, of, in terms of the power aspect, which is the one that really interests mm. me, right, is because we're doing Midden's Advent here and because Riley has put the idea of, uh, of the medieval period into my mm. head, is I think about peasant rebellions, right, where uh, something becomes physically intolerable for people to the point that being, you know, tortured and crushed to death is is preferable. And they, you know, they rebel against their liege lord and so on and are duly crushed in turn. But then, you know, however many months or years later, you you get the announcement that it has pleased his majesty to do the thing to alleviate whatever. And everyone celebrates this as a successful reform, right? And I, I do worry that this is kind of the path the left has taken is that we have articulated this thing that's intolerable. We have now been crushed, <laughs> and the future that awaits us is all of the same people like this Wubbin guy, uh, just telling us, "Yeah, well, it, it, you know, we we now recognize this problem, and we have been pleased to grant you a solution to it." Yeah, and I think the the amazing foresight in bringing that uh, example up in the context of this podcast has suddenly hit me, guys. Amazing work. <laughs> um, and the, the, <laughs> The, but the, yeah, so on that the power one, I, I, yeah, I think that's right. That the we've been dealt a, a, a sort of positive card here from the science community that things have become so overly quantified, and there are huge potential problems with this the sort of quantification of climate, the, particularly the climate crisis. And you kind of see this potentially in Bill Gates's book, where he's like, you know, there are two numbers that that matter. There's you know, the the amount of carbon that's going to the atmosphere now and then there's zero, which is where it needs to get to. But in some ways that is useful because the proof is going to be in the in the horrendous global cooker pudding that's going to happen in the next number of decades where a lot of this app harvest crap, you know, is going to, it has to start to bend the dial on the the metrics that we're increasingly getting to measure the scale of the environmental destruction. And the the complete lack of desire to face up to power in any form, particularly um, within the context of economics, over the last many decades and longer, is you know we're, we're, the, the showdown is happening in many respects now, right? Because the, the the inability to, for example, to ensure that a lot of the standards on financial institutions to make sure that they're investing in 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 ways that aren't environmentally destructive, it, yeah, anyone who's who's has read half of a, a textbook about anything knows that if those are not b- fully enforced or that we actually change the structure of the finance system, then the likelihood of that happening is going to be very, very low. And that will come out every year in the stats that we've got on the amount of carbon going into the atmosphere. 
Mm. The thing that the thing that gives me anxiety. The other thing. I'm sorry. I'm just going through a list here. Like this is give me more. Give me more. It's it's the treats. It's the fucking treats. I like my treats. Everyone likes our treats, and the, the, our our system has been tremendously successful at balancing it to the point where mm. enough of us get enough treats enough of the time mm. that we don't feel like something sort of this this cataclysmic showdown is happening at all. Mm. I suppose that's where the politics comes into it, right? And the fact that this this can't this is not something that is simply going to happen automatically as the contradictions heighten like that because there are still politics coming You're along the other me s- i have to do actual fucking work instead of waiting for shit to happen oh, i already told come on contradictions heighten yeah um heighten come on so it, it come but on. that's where the politics comes into it i think that's where the idea of a sort of um uh you might say uh, organized left, such as it is, needs to keep these ideas front and center, right? Otherwise, that's otherwise we do Sorry, risk. Did you just of, make reference to the concept of an organized left? Yes, buddy. Such, if I got some bad news for you, <laughs> such, <laughs> such, such as it is, yeah. um, it's got a mole. It's got a mole. Yeah. Yeah. Look, we Starmer's got a, Starmer runs a tight ship over here on the left. He's already infiltrated. I, 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 I welcome the moles. But I also I mean, think we need to balance the views of the moles with those farmers, many of whom are Labour supporters, who are anti-mole. <laughs> I, I mean, that's my serious, uh, depressive, pessimistic question to Laurie, who is, by all accounts, an optimist, is, have we blown it? Like, genuinely, did we blow it with Bernie and with Corbyn and whoever else? No, I, d- I don't think so at all. I, I think that there, there was always... well. One one of these futures that we've been banging on about. What one was always going to be? Well, I hope uh, it's not the story. one we're going about on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, was, I don't want to live in that one. <laughs> yeah, one of the less trashy ones was always going to be that. Um, you know, you there was going to be a there needed to be a group of people who smashed through the kind of stultifying setup of politics and particularly conversations about political economy over the last ten years, and it wasn't just going to be. Um, outside events that were necessarily going to lead that to happen. Mm-hmm. And the next stage of that project is for it to sort of, is to mature into, um, and I think this comes from a generational perspective, that, that there needs to be a process of a sort of maturation of that project so that a lot of the, 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 the ground that was opened up to discuss certain economic ideas, um, we have to appreciate that that's there right now. And mm-hmm. to look beyond, and I mean this with all sort of respect, to anyone who's thinking different to this, that we've got to look beyond the sort of the people and the personalities that have popped up over the last few years and the, and the pain for some people of certain defeats and stuff and look at how the, the sort of frontiers of discussion around what could change in the economy has opened up more and more. Now, that's not to say that it's suddenly this dreamland in which it's, it's you know, rich pickings for everyone, but there's far more possibility that's in the air and far more desire to talk differently about the economy. We have to recognise that that was a... That was a huge victory on the part of people who slogged over the last few years. The question now is how that gets taken and run with it, and particularly from a younger generation. So if you're at the beginning of your 30s, for example, of which there are now increasingly a number of high-profile campaigners or politicians or people... Podcasters. Podcasters, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, just beautiful people. Um, beautiful you have to understand people, that. tremendous. Very good friends of mine, many of them. They're wonderful. You can hear them, you can see them. They're around, they're, but they're campaigning for many different things, yeah. beautiful things. Uh, we'll see more of them. And in 20 years' time, they will be, about, at the beginning of their 50s, which is the age right now, that the, the average age right now of a top-level political leader in Europe. And we could be at a two-degree temperature oh, rise by that point. Mm-hmm. 
And I, I, I don't want to think about the idea of me and my peers as top level yeah. political. Yeah. Alice, you're going to be in charge. No, Alice, gonna- can it be any worse than yeah. the ones we have now? Yeah. Al- no, Al- Alice, we're going to put you in charge of uh, the Hebrides. Alice is going to be in charge of giving out the badges for all the people who've done well. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Alice, stop hoarding all the badges. You have to give those out. <laughs> no, they're not for you. You can all you can, uh, you you scratched that one yourself. You can have one. Yeah. <laughs> um, look, I think like I, this is this is what we say, right? That the, the politics does sort of come into it more directly there, and I think like my own pet theory, to to be honest is that the the U.S. sort of fucked it slightly less, if only because the left in the U.S. did not come as close to taking power, which means that, mm. like, the liberals in the U.S. didn't need to pursue a scorched earth policy where it basically had to disavow them as, you know, the, the, the worst possible thing that could happen to the country. Mm. I think that's why Biden has sought, cert- in addition to wanting his ego stroked and probably forgetting where he is and why he's doing it, mm. has sought certain limited accommodations Whereas in the UK, because there needed to be a scorched earth to prevent the left getting back into power, mm. uh, there has been no dialogue, really. It's just that the Tories have kind of realized that, and this is a, a, st- a stat from Bloomberg. This is a stat about the US, but I think there's something, uh, th- there is an equivalency here. This is the US Energy Secretary, Jennifer Granham, saying that there is a $23 trillion uh, global market for clean energy products. And that's just clean energy products. That's not any of these other segments that you addressed, Laurie, right? Where mm-hmm. it is being noticed by the parties of capital, formerly the parties of neoliberalism, now the parties of capital patronage, whatever you want to call it, the model we're in now, have yeah, yeah, have noticed mm-hmm. that essentially if you want to do MCM, if you are finance, if you are planning the economy for the sake of capital, this is a great way to do it. There's quite a bit there is quite a bit here. Right. So I think the question isn't, is it going to happen? I think the question is, who's going to be in what rooms where what decisions are getting made? Uh, who is going to benefit from that $23 trillion uh, market? How much of it is going to go to personal friends of Matt Hancock? I think like these are the kinds of questions. The answer I may surprise you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think this is, this is the, these are the answer. These are the questions that I think are relevant when you're thinking about uh, the economy and the green transition, not whether, mm. but how and for whom. Yeah, and I think you do have to think of it in terms of monarchism, both in the sense of the important thing to these people is not like how it gets done, it's that they're still in charge yeah. of it, and also about the Ursula Le Guin quote about how the divine right of kings seemed unassailable 200 years mm. ago. Indeed. Mm. Um, yeah. I do. I, I the do. Divine Right of Kings is the name of my other podcast. That's right. It's me and the fellas. So, uh, Laurie, <laughs> I want to ask you about uh, the Lucas plan, which you discuss yeah. in your book. So the Lucas plan, uh, for those who don't know, uh, was this amazing moment where a, I think aerospace, was it an aerospace company? Yes. Um, was, I should know this, it's in the, I would just flick through my own book and have a look. Leftist um, hasn't read his own book. Yeah. <laughs> the, so the, this is, this is Matt's particular favorite, right? And he, he wanted to get mm-hmm. this in the book and I completely, I completely agree with him at this because it's this amazing example of a company that was going to going to be sold off. The workers were going to lose jobs in the context of the, the huge economic problems of the 1970s and international competitiveness. And blah, blah, blah. And the workers came around and said, hang on a minute, we, we think we can come up with a plan here that could be an alternative direction to what then became the classic playbook for what happened to British industry subsequently, right? Of, you know, carving it up and selling it off. Or you this is ontology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and they came up with this plan called the Lucas plan because that was the name of the company. 
and to in, in extraordinary detail planned out the type of socially useful products are going to make many of them related to uh, the environmental crisis and as much as it was understood at the time, cleaner technologies. A process for how those things are going to be manufactured, very detailed business plans, training schedules for how they would make sure that all workers were brought along with this kind of transition. And it was just an amazing moment that we had in the context of the sort of massive changes of the 1970s that gave us a taste of what an alternative direction could have been. Now, of course, the the, the, the plan was ignored and, you know, people were sort of pushed oh. away, some were fired, et cetera, surprise, surprise. And it's become something that in the context of the current moment, people have thought about more and more that actually, you know, we, we know we've got over here huge problems with uh, how companies are investing, what they're doing, uh, how they're treating their workers. And we know that having more democratic involvement with the economy could be something that's hugely beneficial for how the economy develops, but also for the particular people within the economy itself. We know that the corporation uh, isn't just something that, you know, we're told the stories about and, you know, creating value just for shareholders that all of these other stakeholders are involved, all this kind of stuff. And so people are interested in this plan again, and it potentially offers offers us a different direction mm. that we could take things like the corporation and, and the way we plan our economy. So if you want, if you, if you think about, like I said, you think about um, money, not just as money, but as sort of potential labor, as labor in the planning stages, right? The way you mm. allocate this, you know, that there is that 23 trillion of addressable market, meaning 23 trillion of sort of work that could conceivably need to be done and planned and valued. Um, the question is, you know, is it going to be done and planned and valued by Wubbin? Um, or is it going That's to right. be sort of you know done and planned, executed, owned, and so on in this other way, right? And the point of political transformation is is is, is to understand a north star, and that's one of the reasons I think that you know this this is a rare book about the damn environment that you know is not is not a black pill because it's rather talking about what I think is a necessary component of any kind of left program, which is considering not just what we're working against but what we're working towards in in the cl- in the context of climate breakdown yeah yeah and that's what we were trying to do and in in doing that we were trying to draw on so much of the amazing work that has happened for a long time things like the lucas plan if you go back further but also all of the strands that we're starting to see now erupting out and attracting and even starting to divert mainstream attention and let's go back um, let's go back a little bit to when we were talking about the politics and the, the contrast between the, the US and the UK. I think that the, mm. because th- this goes to the heart of some of the things that we're trying to grapple with in the book. Um, the, the Green New Deal in the context of the US, I think, pro- provides extraordinary opportunities. It's been an amazing example of both breaking in a way that, you know, no listener of this podcast in any way would be surprised at the idea of, you know, starting to use politics to talk about changing systems. Mm -hmm. But it's also, this is key and underappreciated, I think, by the younger generation. It's tried to talk about the environmental crisis in a way that isn't this sort of abstract preserve, doom-laden preserve of sort of metropolitan elites. Mm -hmm. It actually can be connected to the lived experience of people who have been disenfranchised by a lot of what's happened under neoliberalism. Mm. And I think this is one of the reasons why you're seeing the situation in the US in the context of Biden's administration, partly because things are so bad and so obviously bad. And it's and there are so many ways that you can connect those things together to get people to understand how interconnected they are 
that actually you'll, you'll be able to, you're able to provide a really compelling, even more compelling left agenda. And, and one of my concerns here in the UK is that we, we haven't yet totally got that translation of the sort of amazing potential of something like a Green New Deal to then speak to all of the different ways people have been disenfranchised under neoliberalism. Now, I think, that's, I think that the components of that are there, but telling it on a scale and with a reach that it really becomes a, an attractive prospect, at least enough to create a power base to sort of shunt along the mainstream progressive party. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, th- that's the kind of thing that we've got to grapple with, obviously in the context of then, a, the, the sort of governing centre-right party not mm-hmm. openly denying the science, you know, yeah. actually cozying up to it as a subject matter. So it's, uh, as th- this is from, uh, from Laurie to the left. Get your act together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, always here to help, guys. Oh um, boy. So I think that's that's a good a place we need to end. Is five years, <laughs> uh, and, and, to, and to not piss off anyone who watches or is on Question Time. That's right. Um, mm. So uh, best behavior, no more cyberbullying. Oh, so, I've got a question about the people coming over here putting the ads everywhere. I just wondered what the panel thought about the ads because uh, uh, we got rid of the moles and now we've got all these ads everywhere. So wondering what's going on with them. We've been going a little bit long, but I found this article and I couldn't not read it. So we're going to read a little bit of it. Okay. It's from uh, Project Syndicate, which is like a it's it's basically writing op eds to place in papers. Mm-hmm. Um. And the article is called A Requiem for the Stiff Upper Lip by Raj Prasad and yes. Adrian Furnham. Yes. Yes. Perfect. <laughs> you okay. Said, yeah, right? All it's, right. It's late, but I had to put it in. Yeah. Um, Fair enough. With the passing of Prince Philip on April 9th, they write, the United Kingdom may have lost its last exponent of the stoic attitude that has defined so much of its modern history. No, it hasn't. Mm. Uh, no, it hasn't. You made that up. That's just a story. That's just, that's just ideology, and you're just writing about ideology. Nonetheless, other cultures have picked up the baton, and modern society will always have need for those who excel at keeping calm and carrying on. Ah! I really hate how that's become a thing. It's so like ah. Oh. <laughs> so no, that that's the that's the the, the header. Here's the here's where we get into the details of it. If Philip's passing means we are we will also be bearing the iconic image of the British stiff upper lip. Should we mourn that loss as well? What the fuck does that even mean? Why would why would one guy who was 99 years old, why would him dying mean that the concept of the stiff upper lip, which, which did not exist anyway, why would that mean that that is... Why, this is like literally like I have an article. The premise, unfortunately, doesn't make any fucking sense, but I don't care. I'm soldiering on. Let me just briefly interrupt you to point out that Raj Pasod, the um, one of the two writers of this, is a psychiatrist who was suspended for three months of plagiarism, and is also the author of a book called "The Mental Vaccine for COVID 19 oh, The cool. fucking mental vaccine. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, um, there was a time when this characteristically characteristically British display of stoic resolve was widely admired. When the UK was the world's leading power, it seemed to owe its posi- that position to its mustn't grumble approach to life. Oh, sorry. So it turns no, it's out mostly the guns. Yeah, I think. it's it turns out. Yeah, it, this is like Jared Diamond with a head injury. <laughs> <laughs> um, and of course, this attitude was on full display when you can almost say it with me now. Britain resisted a Nazi <sighs> onslaught that had already swept over its European neighbors. But we fucking love grumbling. We always have loved grumbling. We spent most of the war grumbling. <laughs> That's right. So, I mean, yeah, because what were you going to do? Like, just tell the fucking, like, dive bomber being like, oh, did you assume my uh, bombing pattern? 
or whatever, and then you know, off it would go. <laughs> just like, yeah, I'm gonna spend the next sixty years telling everyone I ever meet about this uh, in order to like tell them why there's only two genders. So uh, <laughs> anyway, here is there is my favorite paragraph okay. though, or my uh, my next two paragraphs are my favorite. In March 1912, the explorer Captain Lawrence Oates joined a British Antarctic expedition ah, seeking to be the first yeah, to the, the South night. Pole. Yeah, the mission failed, and Oates uh, begged his companions to leave him and save themselves. When they refused, he casually said, I'm just going outside and maybe some time. He never returned to the... No, 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 that's That's what they said, he said. And that's what the press printed. For all we fucking know, what he said was, oh, I'm gonna fucking kill myself. <laughs> uh, you don't know. They don't know. Oh, fuck. He never returned... What do you think of my impression of Michael York? <laughs> he never I'm going out into the <laughs> snow. Hold up, hold up, yeah, hold he, up. He said his last words, the Shahada. <laughs> so he never... He never returned to the group's tent, but his last words lived on, stiffening upper lips throughout the realm. <laughs> no. Yeah, that's what was being stiffened, yeah, all right? Yeah, baby. Oh, so stiff. Getting your upper lip stiffened by a twink. Yeah, my, oh, getting your so upper lip stiff. stiff.com. And then, okay, setting up that oh, Prince Philip is like Captain Lawrence Oates because, like, you know, he'll go to, you know, <laughs> he'll go to, like, I don't know, like, like a school to open its new gym and then just call the students a slur that hasn't been used since the 17th century. Mm. He's a lot like Captain Lawrence Oates in that they're both fucking dead. <laughs> But apart from that, how many, here, how many whops there are in here? here? Here's the great, here's the great paragraph. It is impossible to imagine Oates's generation venting about anything with Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> yeah, because she wasn't what? alive. Because because and even if she had been alive, they certainly wouldn't have let a black woman have a fucking TV show because TV didn't exist. Also, yeah. like, nah, they wouldn't have let a white woman have one. <laughs> That, that that whole generation, like Lawrence Oates was born in 1880. That entire generation loved spiritualists, uh, mediums, doing cocaine with your therapist. Like yeah. th all of these guys, fucking love talking about their feelings. What like what do they think that gothic literature was? <laughs> like it was it was these like it was basically just anxiety written down. Um, but I love this. But Prince Philip's grandson, Prince Harry, recently did precisely that. So has the UK <laughs> lost its claim to being the strong, silent type? God tier brain article. I love this article. It's one of my favorites. Um, anyway, then there's some like um uh, uh, uh fucking uh phrenology bullshit where it's like a stupid made up Myers Briggs nonsense about Philip being a repressor of his own emotions or whatever. Um, you know, yawn. Um. But the, the article ends, In the past, physical endurance, determination, and fortitude were the defining characteristics of those who succeeded in staking a claim on the world. Yeah, it sure was, buddy. But today, success comes to those who can schmooze or, or brand, promote their brand or schmooze a venture capitalist. Traditional masculine values are no longer revered and often outright <sighs> scorned. Being likable, something to which Philip certainly never aspired, again, due to the sort of constant stream of racism and sort of class uh, and, and, and class uh, uh, contempt that was coming out of his mouth, has become the sine qua non of career success. By contrast, Oates, before his untimely death, was known to be argumentative with the leader of the expedition, Captain Robert Falcon Scott, which would have been career suicide today. <laughs> cool. Yeah, Thank you, guys. never argue with their boss. Yeah, yeah no, never. The serve never did. Great, great, great. Great, yeah. great, great column. Yeah, great, great column, buddy. I loved reading. I hope you loved writing it as much as I loved reading it because I mm. thought it was fantastic. Just a little bit of just sort of just total just dumb bullshit to round out the episode. Oh, it's amazing how much like, these people get paid. Well, well, I, 
I mean, I'm I'm pretty sure, right? That this there's just there's a culture war AI, and it's a pretty low quality one that's just sitting there pumping things out. And these mm. kind of because we've got this was the Sarah Vine article this week in the Mail, right? Was about how Philip epitomised masculinity and how that has you know gone down the toilet as well. Mm-hmm. And we we got to stop. We got to start ignoring the 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 culture wars AI stuff that that, that it's kicking out all the time and just be talking about. The economy, in the, and particularly in the context of things like the environmental crisis, as well. Absolutely, you know? economy mm. only. No, no culture war bullshit. That is some CIA shit. We're talking about the economy. The economy and that's what he baby. really said when he left that tent that day. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> that's right. right. <laughs> <laughs> Laurie coming in, coming in with the heat towards the end. What he actually said was, <laughs> "I'm going to become the Joker." Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, all right, and uh, he did. That's why you never saw him again, because he became the Joker. Yeah. But uh, noticing it's gone long and the stream's going to start shortly, I want to mm. say, uh, Laurie, where can people find your fine book? They can, they can, uh, they can find it anywhere. They shouldn't, they shouldn't find it on Amazon. Um, they should go mm. to Verso Books, um, which they can, they can Google, they can go on Verso's Twitter, or to buy in any wonderful independent bookshop, which I'm sure they'll be able to find mm-hmm. while outside their door. Mm. Indeed. Uh, and also, I want to say as well to Laurie, thank you very much for coming on and for sending me your book, which I enjoyed reading. My pleasure, guys. It's always good to be talking yeah. to you. Indeed. We will see you at Dave Courtney's Jacuzzi Party. <laughs> <laughs> in Dave Courtney's Jacuzzi. <laughs> That's, right. Week. That's right. That's uh, right. Yeah. And uh, don't forget, we have a Patreon. It is five bucks a month for a second episode per week. This week... We read Vince Cable's taut, sexy thriller uh, to Nish Kumar again. Oh, boy, did I get mad about that book. <laughs> it was a really bad book. It's a really I got mad at the Nish. It was a bad book. Yeah, it was a yeah. bad book. Uh, so if you want to hear us continue our bizarre tradition of um, reading the terrible books that MPs write to uh, one of the country's more prominent comedians for some reason, uh, then do tune in for that. Mm. Uh, but otherwise... Like I said, Laurie, thank you so much. To you, uh, listeners, uh, Planet on Fire and Manifesto for the Age Environmental Breakdown. Mm. And we'll see you on the bonus episode in a couple days. Bye. See you later.